This is Scott Burns. And this is Tony Burns <laughs> with Love in America. Coming to you from the crooked little house in Deadwood, South Dakota. And uh, in this episode, we're exploring mixed faith yes. relationships, yes. which, you know, in our travels across America, they've shown are, are a lot more common mm-hmm. than we'd known. And I looked it up and, you know, it made You mean just, than we expected? Than we expected. Because we didn't know. We're all about blowing away expectations. <laughs> and, you know, it's even more common than just a few years ago. And that's mm-hmm. probably in part because it doesn't seem like such a big deal today right. you know, as it was years ago. But I looked it up and about 40% of marriages in America are between people of different religions. Really? Yeah, well, they were less than half that before 1960. Really? And there's far more unmarried couples in mixed relationships, but interfaith marriage and dating both still vary enormously depending on the faith. Okay. Hindus and Mormons rarely marry out of their faiths, right. while Jews and Protestants often do, although it's common <laughs> for them to convert between faiths in those relationships. So even though it's more common today, though, loving somebody whose basic beliefs about, you know, little things like, you know, what your kids should believe, (laughs) whether each of you has a soul, what happens to it, the first big hurdle about what kind of wedding ceremony to have. Yeah, that's a big one. Those still mean significant challenges that same faith couples don't face. Correct. And pressures from older, more orthodox families can also be really hard. Yes. And we're going to see that in one of the interviews that Mm -hmm. we have coming up. And that's sometimes cited as a reason for why interfaith marriages end in divorce more often than same faith unions do. Oh, that's terrible. And well, and I thought that was really interesting, too, because research shows that the older people get, the more likely they are to marry outside their faith. Really? So there's because they've really... already met everybody at church, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> or the synagogue, or so whatever. <laughs> there's obviously some complicated dynamics still going on with these things. I, I think it's really hopeful though that interfaith couples on a recent YouGov survey mm-hmm. said that having the same values is right. far more important than having the same religion. That makes sense. So when we start with one another at a point of love, mm-hmm. we can find common connections and set you know dogmas and differences aside. Interfaith couples find a way to fundamentally connect with each other through love first. First. I think there's a message in there for the rest of us. (laughs) What could that be? (laughs) In fact, I found a book on the subject called American Grace that backs up what I think most of us know intuitively. Mm -hmm. The more Americans get to know people of other faiths, the more they like them. Yeah. Fancy that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's there's many well-known American interfaith marriages, of course. Larry King right. uh, was raised Jewish, and his wife, Sean King, was raised Mormon. Uh, Tom Hanks is a Protestant, but was raised Catholic. And his wife, Rita Wilson, is Greek Orthodox, and her father's Muslim. I'm that's, getting a headache. That's a, that's a, maybe Dad did too at first. Mel Brooks, of course, which is your story yes, today, mine. was born and raised mm-hmm. Jewish, and his wife Anne Bancroft is an Italian or Catholic right. Italian. Uh huh. And we're going to be Tony's going to be covering that story coming up here in South Dakota. We have a favorite son who has a really interesting interfaith story, and that's Black Elk. Oh, Remember yes. Remember, mm-hmm. Black Elk Speaks yes. years ago. Oh, years Beautiful ago. philosophy yes, from is. Lakota. He was devout in his Lakota beliefs, but his first wife, Katie Warbonnet, was Catholic. And he maintained both faiths. Hmm. And in his remarriages, also raised his, baptized his children Catholic, because mm-hmm. he said they have to live in this world. Right. But he maintained both faiths and became a catechist of Catholicism and is being considered for sainthood. Oh, wow. For uh, canonization by the Catholic Church. What? I wonder if he ever met Joseph Campbell. 
I don't know. Well, he has now. He has now, yeah. <laughs> now, our planned journey for the summer is going to include a chance to hear more of those stories of Lakota lives and loves from the people of the Rosebud Sioux Reservation. But for now, we're going to move to some other stories of interfaith love, including a Portland, Oregon interview with a... Uh, I guess you could say Wiccan and atheist couple. They both state that they're pagan, but but he seems <laughs> to be more. I would almost say agnostic, not even really classically atheist. He's a work yeah. in. He's a, a self-dedicated work in progress. Okay, I can work with. I can work with that. <laughs> and we have faith that that's going to work. Oh. <laughs> now Tony's uh, love and history this mm-hmm. week is. That's going to be Mel Brooks and and Bancroft. And same thing. A very both came from pretty strong religious families and seem to get along just fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's all working out somehow. And and our original tale from the Heart of American Narrative is a story that kind of asks, if God had an ID card, what would it say? (laughs) And a story called God Is. Nice. All this coming up on Love in America. Love in America is brought to you by you. You. Ours is a shared labor of love, existing through the support of patrons like you. You can help keep the love strong and these podcasts coming through supporting Love in America on Patreon. That would be www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash America. For as little as a dollar a month, or up to 20 if you're feeling very generous and loving, you can be a patron of love. You could be a de Medici of hope. One of the things that we always talk about is um, blowing away, oh, what's the Expectations. word? Expectations. Yeah, anticipating things about people. Well, and also blowing away preconceptions of love, including um, things like, you know, you have to love yourself before you can love somebody else. Right. We've already shown that that didn't work with another couple. But well, those are, I think some of these things are kind of guidelines. Guidelines, I mean, but you, a lot you of... You can handicap the road to love and happiness. <laughs> I'll take a 10 handicap on that. Thank you very much. Uh, that's a golfer joke in case if you guys didn't get it. If you uh, love golf. <laughs> well, I think the couple that we met in Portland kind of hit on it, too, because their fundamental philosophies mm-hmm. are very different. They uh, they actually came together because of a sick friend. Uh-huh. They had a mutual friend. They were supposed to do a gathering at her house, and she came down sick, asked Jade, oh, can we go to your place and have everybody there? Well, that's where Ben showed up. And Ben glimpsed her from across the room <laughs> and he was smitten the end of that first meeting there was a sign that they were onto something pretty special right away definitely one of the cool things about that evening is i went in and gave her a hug mm-hmm. and pulled her in and we hugged for i'm gonna say five minutes i think at least at least, at least five which minutes which would be like creepy right like normally i was really worried about it <laughs> actually kind of looking for a sign you know the, the butt scoot back or the shoulders so but i didn't get anything so i'm like all right i'm staying here it was so. it was like, yummy and i've never had that before like ever so after the not creepy hug <laughs> He called her up and was going to invite her for dinner. I actually stalked her on Facebook to find her first. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he got a hold of her, wanted to take her out to dinner. She goes, no, I'll just bring a couple bottles of wine over to my place and we'll just hang out. Because she's thinking, I'm going to get to know this person as uh-huh. a friend better. Yeah. And he's thinking, oh, first date. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
it's a very guy girl yeah, difference in yeah how definitely <laughs> definitely but the really cool thing about it, they did they ended up drinking a bottle or two of wine and she said they talked all night and it just seemed very natural to them and she finally at one point said let's do something different to what couples or relationship people do from the very beginning let's be completely transparent let's put all of our cards on the table no matter how uncomfortable they are and be completely open with Tell each, each other. other everything we've never told anybody, anybody before. else because if you want to be fully accepting of someone you need to know what it is right. you're accepting you're, what you're accepting yep <laughs> i accept you for everything wait what you didn't mention that <laughs> Well, and the differences in those visions were made really clear when they answered our question about, you know, do you believe in happily ever after? When I think of that, I think of like a destination of where you land. But for me, it's more of a journey. So it's what you do with each other every day and how you love each other all the time and you work through everything. So, yes, I do absolutely believe in happily, um, happily ever after, but on a daily basis, I guess I would say. Um no, if the term means something akin to like soulmate, like the idea that there's just only one single person for you, I don't necessarily believe that. But I think that you can certainly be happy forever with uh, who you choose to be, the person that you love. And that kind of honesty and openness allows them also to have uh, a little bit of fun with their differences too. <laughs> I am a good judge of taste. I just want this on the record. <laughs> I have amazing taste, baby, but sometimes baby. she's still coming up to you know, my level with this. <laughs> so you were talking earlier about interfaith couples and how it, it's becoming more and more common. But the one thing that doesn't change a whole lot sometimes is not how the couples react to an interfaith relationship, but how the families right. or the people around them react well, to especially that relationship. With, with older, more traditional faiths and dogmas right. that right. can create some additional pressures. Her family's great. They're just very fun-loving, you know? You meet them for the first time, and it's like, hey, how you doing? Here's a tequila shot. Let's go talk a little while. Um, so they're just very laid back, fun. They love to cook. Um, so I felt immediately accepted by them. Unfortunately, my parents uh, are really fundamentalist Protestants, um, mm. and that's fine. And I grew up on that and decided it wasn't for me and went a completely different path. Um, and it just was something they couldn't let go. So after a while, I just said, please, let's, let's talk about anything else but that. And my, they literally couldn't not do it. And so I said, if you can't stop, I, I can't talk to you anymore. You know, this is one of those couples where you just know they found it. Yeah, that, they, they that... are so comfortable with each other. Right. It's amazing. The big capital I, it, the happily ever after, whatever we call it. And, you know, we're on a never-ending quest to define what it what is. is. But they found it. And mm -hmm. we asked them, okay, how come everybody doesn't find it? I think maybe because... Some people think it is a person, and that's a big mistake. Um, yes, the person is absolutely important, and you have that chemistry together and the love and experiences together. Um, but it is a mindset. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning we had this thing to just be transparent all the time, and with that comes this notion of like absolute acceptance. And I mean that in the biggest sense of the word because so many people, they don't mean to, but they always hide some part of themselves that they think is ugly or they don't like. It may not always look pretty and maybe you might be like 
feeling some shame or like, oh my gosh, should I really share this? But then you do, and then your partner totally accepts it and accepts you and they love you for the things that you feel maybe you don't want to share with other people. And that's so amazingly liberating and it's so, it just opens your heart. Well, part of finding it, I guess, is you would you would think that your fundamental values and philosophy are going to be the same, right. which oftentimes are not. So theirs was very apparent in the differences of how they see Life. life and the afterlife. <laughs> and the afterlife. And the afterlove. Afterlife of love. Uh -huh. We're going to have very different answers on We're this. We're going to have very different answers for okay. sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. I'm studying witchcraft. Um, and I was raised Catholic. Don't follow that at all anymore. But I do believe in life after death, for sure. Um, do I know if love continues I'd like to think so I hope so uh, it feels good for me to think that way but can I answer for sure do I know that it does I don't know for me there is no life after death so love going on it would not make sense to me but if there is life after death then yes our love would survive and we would find each other <laughs> <laughs> there, there's my good answer <laughs> Good save, Ben. And that leads so perfectly into the whole I love you because. Because mm -hmm. we ask people, you know, we always say I love you, mm -hmm. but we oftentimes don't say why. So we ask people, can you tell us without using the word love? Right, right. What it is about them that makes you love them. And our Ben the Poet had, had a really nice, nice way of telling her. Poetical. Poetical. You captivate me. You intrigue me. Mm -hmm. I love your laugh. I love your quirky sides, the way you talk in your sleep, the way you are <laughs> constantly late. But for Jade, all the big things have kind of been squared away. You it's know, that whole the, transparency thing. Right. She's, you know, that the big stuff <laughs> they is... They got everything. She, she understands. They've thought about it. They're they're cool. They've and talked so about it. She didn't have the sort of, how uh -huh. do I love thee, let me count the ways. Mm -hmm. Hers boiled down to something pretty simple. Sharing your tea. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and there's something beautiful about the simplicity so, of love. And tea. <laughs> so speaking of which, we're going to take a short break so I can get a cup of tea. <laughs> and then we will be right back with the love story of Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. Hi. <laughs> if you're loving what you're hearing on Love in America, nearly as much as we're loving hearing that you're loving what you're hearing on Love in America. It's, it's lovely to be loving, loving people. <laughs> it's nice to be nice to the nice. <laughs> you're probably hoping there's something else you can do. Is there? To spread the love. Is there? There is. <laughs> Leave us a review with your preferred podcast provider, oh, iTunes, yes. uh, Stitcher, TuneIn. Google Play. <laughs> all the above. And let them know what you think. Okay, so I've got a really strange question to start this whole thing with. Won't be the first time. Do you know <laughs> Do you know how Mel Brooks got into comedy? I assume it was natural for him, but I don't know the inc the inciting incident. He actually was a born jokester. He uh -huh. was class clown, got into all kinds of trouble, but what got him into comedy was drumming. Really? Yeah. His friend, <laughs> I think you've probably heard of Bernard Rich, a.k.a. Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Guess who taught Mel how to play? No kidding. Wait! 
Isn't wow. that very cool? Buddy Rich and Mel Brooks. I know. That would have been awesome. <laughs> that would have been awesome. But his his they his younger brother Mickey was a good friend of Mel's in high school. Hmm. And that's how he met Buddy Rich. So how did this translate into comedy? Well, his family made their yearly pilgrimage <laughs> to the Catskills, which okay. is very it, it was upstate New York. Upstate yeah. New York. Mm-hmm. In that era, it was very much a Jewish pilgrimage. That's where you went in the summer. And as a drummer, he became one of the drummers for one of the house bands. Well, in between, the MC was always a comedian, and he was responsible as the house drummer to do rim shots. Okay. To punctuate the jokes, right? Okay. Right. Well, one night, one of the guys got sick. Uh-huh. Well, he'd been doing this for a while. He was about 14 years old, and so he was basically told by the owner, I need you up there to do the jokes. Mm-hmm. And the first night he did. And they went over okay, okay, but they were, you know, stale one-liner jokes. Well, the second night, he wanted to kick it up a little bit. So he did basically observational comedy on the stuff that was going on at the Catskills, either behind the scenes with staff or with people there, went over huge. So that was his start. And from then on, he became one of the regular MC slash comics up at the Catskills. (laughs) And the rest is history (laughs) with with a rim shot. (laughs) With a rim shot. (laughs) So he and he does still drum. He actually is a no pretty kidding. decent drummer. I didn't know That's, that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, while Mel was born a jokester, Anne was born for the stage. Even as a young child, she loved to sing. Anne Bancroft. Anne Bancroft. Actually, Anna Marie Luisa Italiano. Wow. Yeah. She used to joke that uh, when she was on radio, she was Anna Saint Raymond. Then when she was on television, she was Anne Marno, and then in movies, she was Anne Bancroft. She said, if I ever go into burlesque, I've got one picked out, Ruby Pepper. (laughs) (laughs) No more Anne's. (laughs) No more Anne's. No more Anne's. So the question must arise, how does a statuesque Catholic Italian girl from the Bronx meet a short, goofy Jewish boy from Brooklyn? (laughs) (laughs) Doing rim shots. Doing rim shots. It sounds like there should be a punchline to that. Yeah. There really isn't a punchline. They sort of accidentally met just very, very briefly at a mutual friend's home where Anne had come in to get some information on some choreography and some song and dance with a friend that Mel was visiting, a Charles Strauss. And literally, Mel was smitten. She breezed in, got a couple of questions answered and breezed out. I don't even think she looked at him. And <laughs> he was... She was a very elegant woman. She was very... Statuettes mm-hmm. really does work for her. But he begged Charles, please introduce me to this woman. She's uh-huh. amazing. I've got to meet her. <laughs> Charles didn't want to because he didn't think just on the surface that they would even get along. Uh-huh. I mean, Mel was this goofy guy and a little crazy, kind of manic, and there, there's this beautiful, graceful Anne, and it's like, I don't think so. <laughs> you can't prejudge these things. You can't. You can't. And I'm glad he didn't. At the time, Anne was divorced from her husband for about four years, and she, after the divorce, she started to go see a psychiatrist. It was a very short marriage. It was about four years. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think she was, at that point, divorced longer than she'd been married. But she'd gone to see a psychiatrist to kind of deal with all of this stuff because sure. she was a star fairly young mm-hmm. on stage with The Miracle Worker and then on film. And she was in her 20s then. So she was pretty young when all of this happened. But she vowed to her psychiatrist, the only men in my life from now on will be my father, my agent, my press agent, and my psychiatrists. And she was... <laughs> She was so serious about it. She monogrammed everything she owned with AB for mm-hmm. Anne Bancroft from her panties to her umbrellas. Wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> setting some pretty clearly She's defined boundaries. Very defined for, boundaries. This is me. This is the world. Exactly. And Mel at the time was actually separate. He was still married, but mm-hmm. he was separated from his wife of about seven years. He was, after a series of flops, he was financially not in a good place. And he had three kids and a, a soon-to-be mm-hmm. ex-wife to support. So this is why Charles is going, yeah, I don't think so. Well, Charles finally did sort of introduce them. He took Mel um, when they were out on a walk. He said, oh, let's go check out Perry Como's rehearsal Mm -hmm. for a television show. Well, unbeknownst to Mel, Anne was going to be on that show, and she was doing a rehearsal of a song and dance number, ironically called Married I Can Always Get, and it's about never getting married. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So as soon as she was finished, Mel shouted out, hey, Anne Bancroft, I'm Mel Brooks. And her response to him was, hey, I have your record. And that was the 2,000-year-old the man he uh-huh. did with Kleiner. Nice. <laughs> well, as soon as the rehearsal and everything was done, Mel asked Anne where she was headed. And um, this is a quote from her that I love. He would say, where are you going? And I'd say, to William Morris Agency. And he'd say, so am I. But he really wasn't. And he'd say, where are you going? And I'd say, I'm going to that Delica. And he'd say, so am I. Wherever I said I was going, he would say he was going there. It just went on and on. The man never left me alone thank god (laughs) i could see him being a little hound dog persistent about the whole thing he basically stalked her but it worked because every time he'd show up and she was there he'd go this must be fate Uh (laughs) we were both headed here we were both headed here well she said that that she knew instantly that she was in love with him mainly because he looked like her father and acted like her mother Well, I'd mentioned his at the time he was floundering. So when he tried to ask her out for dinner a couple of times, mm-hmm. but it was clear that he'd always pick something really inexpensive. And it finally dawned on her, he, he's broke. Right. So she started inviting him over for dinner. And then the few times that they would go out, she'd slip him money under the table so he could pay. <laughs> oh, no. But then she'd tell him, don't leave such a big tip. It's my money. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they had an understanding early on. Very That's early nice. on. Well, neither of them were really devout or even particularly religious, but we just talked about this before, they did worry about how their mothers would take the news of this interfaith relationship. Mm -hmm. When Anne brought Mel home to meet her parents, Anne's mother looked at him and totally deadpan said, you could do better. Oh my. She loves him. She Uh loves, this is where Anne and gets her sense of humor too. So Mel said he had a hard time understanding his mother's mm-hmm. reaction when he brought his beautiful Gentile partner home right. because his mother's head was in the oven. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't worry about me. You just bring her over. I'll be fine. <laughs> his mom's name was Kitty. I love that. Uh-huh. He actually, um, she was a single mom. His father died when he was only a couple hmm. of years old, and mm-hmm. she had to raise him and his three brothers by herself. But Mel often joked, you know, when somebody becomes a star, they're no longer, you know, Jewish or not Jewish. A star is a big thing. You know, six points is better, but a star. (laughs) My wife, my wife was a star. My mother was very happy. (laughs) And they did. They they got along beautifully despite Mm -hmm. their their differences. Um, Apparently, Mel never actually asked Anne to marry him, probably because he was terrified of the answer because of this whole everything monogrammed A.B., and she was the one that actually asked him. And when he finally did say yes, they decided because of their backgrounds, they would be married in a civil ceremony at City Hall. Makes sense. 
Yeah, something nice, simple. Well, they remembered to get the marriage license, but they kind of forgot to get a witness. Uh So on the way to the clerk's office, they grabbed a guy that was like standing there in line saying, Uh would you be our witness? And he said, okay. (laughs) Do we know who the guy is? I don't know. I've been trying to find him. So on top of everything else. That guy's got a story. No kidding. Well, on top of everything else, they forgot the wedding rings. Uh So Anne, being a very classy lady, just happened to have silver hoop earrings. And that's what they used as a substitute. Beautiful. And they probably still have them, I'm sure. I'm sure they do. They do. Well, they were a very visually diverse couple. I mean, they were drastically different. And unfortunately, several members of the press kind of cruelly labeled the offbeat couple as Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. Isn't that awful? Well, the press taking advantage and being cruel. I know. How a surprise. Glad something's (laughs) never changed. But they were genuinely happy. Anne said that people think we're an unlikely couple. Wrong. We're perfect. He's terribly funny all the time, and I'm not above competing. At first, maybe I would try to top him. Now, I just rather sit back and laugh and enjoy. You know, maybe because she. He couldn't top him. <laughs> but, well, and it's, it all works out because he probably doesn't look as fabulous in silver hoop earrings. <laughs> <laughs> well, she'd say she'd get all excited when she'd hear his key in the door. It's like, oh, the party's going to start. <laughs> but it's so funny you said that about I, the, I the heels. I would think the same thing if I knew Mel Brooks was oh, at the door. <laughs> definitely. Well, he said that they were so close because they were very on the core levels. They were very, very compatible. And they were so close that they interchanged roles. Mel said, I became the wonderfully statuesque feminine Anne Bancroft. And she became the Yiddish Mel. (laughs) (laughs) I bet she does a great impersonation. Oh, I bet she does. Or did. I bet she did. So they tried trying to fill out their family, sharing some of the love that they had for each other. They tried to have a child for several years Mm -hmm. unsuccessfully. Then at 40 years old, Anne got the news that she was pregnant. Mm. And she jokes that they should have named him Nick because he came just in the nick of time. (laughs) (laughs) What did they name him? They ended up naming him Maximilian Michael. Maximilian, Hmm. Max, that's Mel's father's name. Mm -hmm. Michael is Anne's father's name. Beautiful. How cool is that? And you may know the name Max Brooks. How to Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. He wrote it. He also wrote World War Z. Well, after the birth, Anne didn't want to rush back into being an actress. So she stayed home, decided to do the mom thing. She still did act, but she only would take on one role a year. Mel, never having a father figure beside his brothers, Mm -hmm. was also trying to figure out a stable home life. And so he was always home at dinner at 7 o'clock at night so that the family it's basically a ritual that his son max continues to this day with his own wife and son well i keep talking about how mel and ann themselves were not terribly religious but ann insisted that max be baptized as an infant and she can in order to make this happen she conceded that he could be bar bar mitzvahed at 13 okay So they're trying to just keep so all the bases he, covered. He was bar mitzvahed and baptized. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. Mm-hmm. Get all the bases covered. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mel, when asked that lovely question, what is the secret to your marriage? Oh, uh, I hate that question. I hate it too. <laughs> well, he said the foundation of their partnership, aside from obviously love and laughter, was that he and Anne grew up during their marriage. They both knew what was important and what love meant and what doing for each other meant. Mm-hmm. Mel would constantly say how terrific Anne is. He'd say she's beautiful, she has great shoulders, and she makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) 
And does she say that about him as well? <laughs> she said that she makes her laugh a lot. Uh-huh. I'm sure. <laughs> well, after 44 years together, Anne passed away at the age of 73 from uterine cancer. Oh. Well, obviously, because it took him this long to find his soulmate, it devastated him. Mm-hmm. I mean, for waiting so long to find the love of his life. And he very well could have given up on his, on life right then and there, mm-hmm. except for Max, because Max had just had a son two months before Anne passed away. Mm-hmm. So here's this little life, and it has very simple needs, feeding, clothing, sleeping, burping. So even in the depths of grief, Mel could help with all that. He could handle that, uh-huh. no matter how bad things would get. <laughs> Grandpa Mel Brooks. Grandpa <laughs> Mel Brooks. Perfect. Well, he'd go over to Max's and his wife's home, and immediately the baby would be in his lap. The two of them would sleep on the couch together, because Mel's a little older now. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> He'd walk the baby around until he burped, and then Mel would entertain him. And Max says, to this day, my father and my son have this amazing relationship. My father comes over every night, and my son can't wait. Well, Mel does continue to make films, although his favorite film that he's made is To Be or Not to Be. Really? Because he and Anne were in it together. Oh, I see. And they got to hang out for 24 hours nice. at a time. Nice. <laughs> have to watch that one again. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. As soon as I saw I saw them, I got to watch the movie. Well, despite his, his loss and despite everything that he's had to deal with since she's passed away, Mel still believes that God has been very good to him. He says, God said, here, I'll give you one present for your life. I'll give you Anne Bancroft. And I said, Okay. That's enough. That'll cover me. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get a tissue. I'll be right back. <laughs> if we just have each other and a tissue. And a tissue. And tea. <laughs> and tea. <laughs> That's so, beautiful. Yeah, Mel Brooks has always struck me as one of those people that, you know, that, you, know you get asked if you could just have coffee with anybody oh in the world. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> living or dead. He'd, he'd be right there. He what would if, be right at the top. I wonder what Mel Brooks and Winston Churchill would be like together. Oh, they'd that'd be Because that would be mine right off that the That would be a hoot. <laughs> An odd couple, indeed. So, so anyway, we'll we'll leave that one up to divine intervention as it ever happens. And uh, speaking of which, we have an original tale from the heart of America coming up to close out this episode, and a story called God Is. Hmm. Coming up on Love in America. Tales from the Heart of America are produced by Scott and Tony Burns in the crooked little house of Deadwood, South Dakota. And are part of the Love in America podcast. To learn more, visit our site at loveinamerica.us. Love in America and Tales from the Heart of America are distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. God is a tale from the heart of America. God is love. I would take that one step further to its logical reverse as well, that love is God. I don't consider that to be a religious statement either, any more than I consider myself to be a religious person. As a longtime science teacher with a nevertheless spiritual and philosophical bent, I'm more likely to look for logic, for cause and effect, but also for meaning as opposed to truth, which can be a pretty slippery concept. 
And through these lenses, when I look at the human condition, I see two elements that can't be adequately explained through simple evolutionary or physical means, humor and love. The former I'll leave for a subsequent story, but the latter, love, might be thought of clinically as simply an evolutionary mechanism for pair bonding and species survival. But if that were the only case, why does love not always fade once that utility's spent? In fact, it often takes the opposite, illogical path, growing and becoming even deeper, more individual, and more inspiring. Why does love include non-essential non-family, change its face over time, and extend to loves of place or aspiration? What about loves of music and art? If it were a simple evolutionary adaptation, why does it so often cause people to do things that are counterproductive to their survival? Like mates who die of loneliness within days of losing one of the pair. What of those who become enamored with dangerous extreme activities or Ariana Grande songs? That's not logical, but it is lovely to them. Conversely, Love is the power behind the greatest works of human aspiration and creativity. From the Taj Mahal to Elizabeth Barrett Browning's still breathtaking Sonnet 43, How do I love thee? The first cave painting probably wasn't just a visual account of the hunt, but a passionate expression of, no, I really love antelope. Accounts of near-death experiences talk of reuniting with loved ones. The concepts of spiritual transcendence and reincarnation invariably tell of perfect love being the definition of enlightenment. These elements are admittedly subjective, but they still powerfully promote the idea that love is not only the meaning of life, but is itself eternal. Love is our deepest need, and again, the one aspect of us that may truly be immortal. More tellingly, without it, the Beatles would have been completely flummoxed for material. I could go on at even greater length about my philosophy of eternal and transcendent love, but suffice it to say that for all the reasons above and more, I believe quite literally that God is love, and vice versa. In this, God needs no face, no liturgy, no study, no conscience or personality, and no worship. Likewise, love needs no defense. It exists in its own right and demands no justification. Love is. So for me, God is. But what does this perspective mean from a practical standpoint, and how does it address the important issues we've always deferred to religion? For me, it clears all manner of age-old hurdles. Since love is responsive and compassionate, but has no conscience in and of itself, it doesn't answer prayers. It doesn't have to, because it is itself both the reason for and the answer to all prayers. It doesn't require faith, but inspires it. It transcends fear, death, loneliness, despair, and even the ugliest of all human failings, apathy. Examples of its efficacy in dealing with life's great questions include, why is there evil in the world? Well, because evil isn't a thing in itself, it's the absence of love. 
Thoughts and actions that have no love in their genesis or in their practice are the things that we call evil. Sadly, we had to call them something because we see them all the time, like cheap wine in boxes and people who don't use their turn signals. What's the meaning of life? To seek and to be at peace with the eternal. And what is the one thing we've already agreed is eternal? Right. When you have a child and see their face for the first time, when you hold a friend as they pass the final bridge, or when someone you don't know buys your coffee in the drive-thru, we know love. We touch eternity. And in that moment, we get it. Why did they cancel Firefly after just one season, but Duck Dynasty just kept on going? Well, look back at why is there evil in the world. Love heals all wounds, makes somethings from nothings, dispels evil, creates miracles. What more could we possibly demand of it in order to prove that love is God? When Tony and I ride the country seeking love stories, great and small, we are then, in the immortal words of Dan Aykroyd from the Blues Brothers, on a mission from God. But in a sense, we're also seeking God. Not the bearded fellow with the lightning bolts, some new agey universal grooviness, infallible words from a great text, or even George Burns, charming as he was in the role of cigar-smoking deity. None of that formality or identification is necessary when we keep it simple, when God is love. Because the greatest miracle of love is that it grows the more it's shared. The more you give away, the more you have. And like green shoots splitting stone and concrete, it is all powerful because, in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. When we talked to Dan and Wendy in Grand Rapids, dealing with Dan's early onset Alzheimer's, both of them still laughing as they held hands and faced an uncertain future together. When Kendrick and Amber in Milwaukee shared their faith, their patient love of in-laws and parenting, their funny Uber stories. When Dave and Major in Philadelphia stopped to let us take a picture of their fluffy dog and then taught us about the history and art of the city they've loved for over 30 years together, we realized that our unspoken prayers had already been answered and that every moment with every couple we will meet along Love in America's road is mission from God accomplished. And we can't wait for the next one. So thanks for joining us this week for the Love in America podcast. Love in America is produced by Scott and Tony Burns in the crooked little house in Deadwood, South Dakota. <laughs> to learn more, visit our website at loveinamerica.us. 
Love in America and Tales from the Heart of America are distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. (laughs) And we are looking forward to sharing the love with you next time on... Love in America. (laughs) Hey, there's more to that story. (laughs) There's always more to the story. (laughs) 